Welcome to this edition of It's All Political. I'm John Diaz, the Chronicle's editorial page editor, guest hosting for my friend and colleague Joe Garofoli, who is taking a well-deserved day off. My guest today is John Hickenlooper, who served two terms as governor of Colorado before leaving office in January. He had previously served as mayor of Denver. Governor Hickenlooper began his professional career as a geologist before becoming a successful businessman. Now he is one of 20 Democrats running for President of the United States. After the break, you'll hear more about his ideas on a variety of issues. Governor John Hickenlooper, welcome to It's All Political. I'm delighted to be on. Thank you. Let me ask you, first of all, sort of the fundamental question about running for president. There are now about 20 uh, plus or minus candidates in the Democratic field. I think voters who are listening here are going to wonder, what distinguishes you from a very crowded field? I was a, a geologist, so I've got a scientific background. That's unusual. Uh, I got laid off in 1986 from my job as a geologist and was out of work for almost a couple of years. So I know what that feels like to lose not just a job but a profession. That's unique. I started a, 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 the first brew pub, a restaurant that brews its own beer in the Rocky Mountains back in 1988. Uh, took a couple mo- years to raise the money. My own mother wouldn't invest. But I know what that's like to start a business, to make a payroll, to build a business. And I built, you know, 15 brew pubs and and did another five warehouse renovations. I had, you know, started 20 businesses, created 1,000 jobs. I know what that's like to grow a business. And then I was mayor. I ran for mayor. I got talked into it by a bunch of friends. And Denver's a strong mayor form of government. So I was mayor for eight years. And then I was governor for eight years. So I guess what I stress is I'm someone from outside of Washington who brings a different perspective. But I've also gotten stuff done, right? I've been able to get people together, put down their weapons, and actually create progressive change. I have to ask, we'll certainly be asking about issues in a second, but about opening the Wine Coop Brewery, which is very popular in Colorado. That, you were pretty early on in that craft brew trend. How, how did you anticipate that uh, it was going to take off like it did? My brother lives in Berkeley, was an a automobile mechanic at the time. And he took me to – I was helping him fix his roof. I'd just gotten laid off. And he took me to Triple Rock on Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley. And there was a line out the door on a Wednesday. And I said, holy smokes. And I tasted the beer. And it wasn't so fizzy. It had more flavor. And I, I just kept talking about it when I got back to Colorado. And finally, this old friend said, you should open a brew pub. I, I'd invest. And I'd never worked a day in my life in a restaurant or a brewery. I'd been a home brewer for years. Uh, but I just, you know, I went to the library, got out a book on how to write a business plan. You know, I was a geologist. I didn't know what pro formas were. The, the rent in lower downtown Denver was, was $1 per square foot per year. So eight and a half cents per month per square foot. Uh, I mean, no one thought we had a chance. And yet we, you know, we opened, we finally got opened uh, in 1988. And we worked with the, the, the Wazi Supper Club and My Brother's Bar, some of those other restaurants down there. And we started buying pint glasses together. We advertised in the Denver Post together. And just by working together, we turned that whole neighborhood around. You go to Lower Downtown now, it is one of the national models for urban revitalization anywhere. As someone who lived in Colorado in the 1980s in Denver, uh, I will attest Lodo looks so much different than it does. Exactly. Okay, so Governor Hickenlooper, we will stipulate that you have good business instincts. Okay. (laughs) Let's get your sense of the mood of the Democratic uh, electorate right now. There's at least the conventional wisdom, which, of course, the conventional wisdom is sometimes wrong, is that it's skewing pretty far left right now. And, And you're at least 
generally viewed as a centrist. Uh, do you think that's right? Is, do, do people have the pulse of the Democratic Party? Well, I think the Democratic Party is a big tent and always has been. And I don't like the labels. You know what I am is I'm an entrepreneur and I'm a doer. And I have, I, as governor, we were, we were able to get the oil and gas industry to sit down with the environmental community. Both would put scientists in the same room. And we created the first methane regulations in the United States. And me- methane is 25 to 40 times more harmful to climate and climate change than even carbon dioxide. And yet no one addresses it. They flare it. They, 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 they uh, vent it. We in Colorado, we got the oil and gas industry in the end, after 14 months, they paid $60 million a year to, to – it's the equivalent of taking 320,000 cars a year off the road. Is that centrist? I mean, the, now that's being rolled out as national policy in Canada. Next year, it'll be rolled out as national policy in Mexico. That's not – that's progress. Right? We reduced teenage pregnancy by 60 percent by getting health care clinics and hospitals and everyone working together to provide all women, if they choose, to have long-acting reversible contraception. You know, any, any young woman between the age of 15 and 25 should have the right to choose when she wants to have a family. Is that centrist? Or is that progressive? I go down the list of all these things. We're the only purple state that provide, that passed universal background checks. We have almost universal health care coverage in Colorado, the most innovative health care exchange in the country. You know, people say, well, you're too centrist or you're a moderate, extreme moderate. You know, I'm a doer. And I've been able to get teams of remarkably talented people to, to come together after the elections and get stuff done. Let's drill down on a couple of those issues that, in effect, have become um – Litmus test for progressives. I know you don't like labels, but, yep. but one of them uh, is Medicare for all. You, are, as you mentioned, Colorado certainly expanded health care, but you've been skeptical of Medicare for all. Why? And what's your solution? Well, I'm pragmatic. And right now there are almost 160 million people in this country who have health care coverage through private insurance, most of it through their place of business. And some of them hate it. But over 100 million people say that they want to hold on to, they want to, they want to keep their private insurance that they have now. And in this country, we don't rip away something that people value. We don't take it away from them. Government doesn't do that. I think, and certainly I acknowledge in Colorado, we need a, a public option. We need to be able to have Medicare or maybe Medicare Advantage, some combination of the two, as a, as a public option that people can choose, people who can't afford private insurance or people who can't get the right coverage through private insurance. And, you know, if indeed Medicare scales and becomes more efficient, more attractive, more people come from their private insurance providers and they choose Medicare, then we will evolve and we'll end up with a single-payer system eventually. It might take 10 years, uh, but it will be an evolution and not a revolution. And I think that the real question we should be asking is the cost of health care. Why the that's, I, I mean, health care is a right. Let's all admit that it's basic health care should be a right. It's a human right and not a privilege. Next question is, for the last 35 years, it has been almost every year double. The inflation in health care has been double the, the normal inflation rate. And how are we going to address that? How do we get transparency in the system so consumers know which hospital or clinic is going to give them a better deal for a quality tonsillectomy for their kid? How do we know? How do we get, uh, make sure that the pharmaceutical companies are, are giving a fair price and that we can compete and, and bulk purchase? Why is it that insulin in the United States costs 30 times more than insulin in Canada? These are the questions we should be asking. You mentioned um, 
uh, climate, and, and certainly you are an advocate of taking aggressive uh, action on, on climate, but you've been, and let's go to another progressive litmus test, you've been skeptical, if not outright opposed to the Green New Deal. Why? Well, I believe we need a new Green Deal, but I, I believe we have to have a sense of urgency and focus around addressing climate change. And it, I mean, within 10 or 12 years of a point of no return in terms of damage to our planet, we need, but we need a, a Green New Deal that is 100% focused. The one that was presented had things like a federal job guarantee. Well, that would make it almost impossible to get through the Senate and the House. It would make it hard to implement. There'd be lawsuits. We don't have time. We've got to focus on climate change. You know, in Colorado, we've, we're now in the process of closing two coal-fired electrical generation plants. And for the first time in the country, we're going we're to replace them with coal. I mean, replace them with coal. We're replacing the coal with wind, solar, and batteries. For the first time, no natural gas, batteries. And yet the average monthly bill for the consumers of that electricity is going to go down. So we're going to be able to use market leverage to accelerate getting rid of coal-fired plants. That's that's how we've got to focus on addressing climate change. You know, having a big omnibus with a bunch of different goals, I think it slows us down and we don't have the luxury of taking our time. I was listening to um, President Trump's interview on Sean Hannity last night. Audience, I listen so you don't have to. <laughs> and there was a lot of mockery of the Green and, and misrepresentation of the Green New Deal that it'll get rid of airplanes, it'll get rid of cows, you know, just like this mockery. Do you think a Democrat can can win the election if they're embracing the Green New Deal? You know, a Democrat, what, what we should care about as Democrats is who can beat Trump. And I think who's going to be able to go into Ohio and Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and beat him in those states. And I think that's going to require, you know, a strong stand on climate change because people in those states get it. This is not a, a joke about climate change and the stuff that Trump says is absurd. But people are also going to want to hear about their jobs and how their kids are going to get trained in skills so that all these new professions that appear through technology and innovation and automation, how can they make sure their kids are prepared for those jobs? That's how we're going to win the election in in Ohio and Michigan. And I guess I still feel that my record, you know, having a mayor, someone who was a mayor and a governor, and in both cases was successful in bringing people together and getting things done, that that's going to have, resonation, it's going to have resonance in, in Ohio and Michigan. Speaking of President Trump, the 448-page Mueller report is now out. Um, certainly there are a lot of Democrats who are saying, okay, it is time to move forward on, on impeachment, that with the obstruction of justice that was detailed there, that that should rise to high crimes and misdemeanors. What do you think? Oh, my gosh. Well, you— First, let's just get let's cut back to the facts that are no longer in dispute that the Trump administration essentially admits that the Trump campaign provided polling and other information. They gleefully provided information to a foreign hostile power, Russia, so that they could intervene and meddle in our most sacred of democratic institutions, our election. So first, no one's arguing that anymore. They're also not arguing that that then the Trump administration lied about it and then attempted to cover it up. You know, the, the, the challenge with impeachment, and, and I think we, we're, we're, we might well be there, but the challenge with impeachment is 
It requires the Senate to confirm, and, and the legal standards of impeachment aren't entirely clear. Uh, there's some confusion there. I look at it, and I think what I want is I want to see Attorney General, and I want to see Mr. Mueller testify before Congress. I want an unredacted, full copy of the, of the Mueller report to go to the appropriate committees in Congress, and, and they're used to keeping confidential information confident confidential. Uh, let's get let's get that real information and, and let's get get it out there so we can, you know, have a fair and even better idea of what really happened. Because I think I think there are going to be more surprises in that in the in that report. One of the reasons uh, that Speaker Pelosi and others are a little skeptical about diving too quickly in Im- impeachment is that it, in a sense, plays into President Trump's hands. He has his base uh, is is Part of your concern, political. You've mentioned you know you want to see more of a factual basis to move forward. Well, I want but to make are you sure worry we... about the political peril as well. Yeah, I, I, well, I guess it's one aspect. I'm worried about you know uh, I'm worried about overstepping the where we are. And you know, Trump again, I am beside myself that he happily admits clearly is no longer trying to deny that his campaign knowingly shared confidential information with a f- hostile foreign power so they could meddle in our elections. Uh, it's unbelievable. Uh, we don't want to give him fuel to fight back. We want to just stay on the facts. I just think for a couple of weeks, a few weeks, let's just keep talking about what we absolutely now all agree and just see what the American think about, American people think about uh, a presidential candidate who supplied information to our enemies. Right. And, and encourage them. Essentially, he encouraged them to meddle in our election. Uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, many Americans, and I'm one of them, are speechless or, or at least almost speechless. No, don't be speechless on it's all political. Exactly. exactly. I'll, I'll wait till we, we turn off the mics. As a former governor of Colorado, I have to ask you about marijuana. You, of course. You, you had opposed the legalization. You've come around to at least accept it. Uh, two questions. One, what compelled you to come around on the on the issue? And secondly, what advice can you give us here in California from your Colorado experience? Sure. And first, let's, let's all agree that the old system, the war on drugs, was a disaster. We sent millions of, of low-income kids to prison. We made already difficult lives impossibly more difficult by making them felons. Uh, and for what benefit? I, I was against legalization of marijuana because you don't want to be in conflict with federal law. I was worried about a spike in teenage consumption with this high THC marijuana could affect teenagers, teenage memory uh, and their ability to retain facts for long terms. Uh, we're also worried about people driving while high. We haven't seen that. We, have a, we do a survey of 24,000 people every two years, and we can measure pretty accurately you know, people's habits of consumption of alcohol, of marijuana, of everything. We have seen no spike in consumption of teenagers, by teenagers. We have not seen increases in, in driving while high. Uh, you know, there's still a, a very, very small black market. I think this year we might actually finally get completely rid of the black market. Uh, you, we don't do it for the money, let's be clear. I, I think it's a $1.5 billion industry. Our GDP is $320 billion, so it's less than a half a percent of our GDP. Uh, the tax revenue it's it's you know most of it goes to education and regulation. There's very little left over to do anything else. I think that that doesn't deny the value. I think of 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 going forward with marijuana 
across the country, but I think each state should get to make their own choice. I think the federal government needs to, A, delist marijuana from the, as a Schedule I narcotic, which, you know, when it's a Schedule I narcotic, nobody can test it. Nobody can measure its be- medical benefits. Let's get the FDA, let's delist it as a Schedule I narcotic. Let's get the FDA to really measure what types of autism is it successful with uh, and, and, and seizures, how does it work, how, how can we make sure the types of cannabinoid or marijuana are the most effective ones we're giving to patients? How do we make sure that we can bank? Even medical marijuana states aren't allowed to have bankers or charge cards used in the, in the business. If you were trying to guarantee gang activity and racketeering, that would be a good way to do it, make sure it's cash. So let's get rid of that requirement from the federal government. And you know, let, this, let the federal government make states that choose to legalize medical marijuana or recreational marijuana Let's let the federal government allow those states to have an experiment done safely. And, you know, as I saw that the, the, the biggest fears didn't come to pass, I did believe that I think it's beneficial. It's better than the old system. But I also think that states are the laboratories of democracy and that the federal government shouldn't tell them what to do. They should just allow them to make the choices that they think are best for their citizens. It's the CNN town hall the other night with uh, some of the leading Democratic candidates, it seems like each one kind of came with their own radical goodie box to try and uh, position themselves against the others. One of them, Bernie Sanders, for example, uh, said that he thinks felons should be allowed to vote even while they're serving their prison sentences. What is your thoughts on that? I disagree. I think that I think when, fe- when a felon is released, they should have the right to vote. They're, they paid their, their debt to society. They're back out of the outside. They should be allowed to vote. Uh, I don't see any reason why felons should be – I mean the reason you go to, to prison is you are, you are forfeiting certain freedoms and privileges that you have as a citizen. One of them is voting. One of them is your freedom, right? That's, you, that's why you don't want to commit crimes, right? You, these are things that most Americans want and value. Some of those films may be voting for uh, Bernie Sanders if given the chance. Yeah, well, I'm sure they all would now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, most, most of the felons I've seen in prison, and I've spent a fair amount of time in prisons, most of the felons are not exactly – voting isn't their first concern. <laughs> I can imagine. Elizabeth Warren uh, had a proposal to basically forgive a great amount of student debt in the country. You think that's practical? Well, you know, I met a young woman who was 35, I think, or 36 years old last week, and she had just finished paying off, I think it was $47,000 in debt. It took her like seven or eight years. She had worked long, I mean, overtime. She worked 16, 70-hour weeks to pay off all that debt, and she scolded me. She said, don't you even talk about forgiving everyone's debt unless you're going to help pay back what I killed myself. When I paid off my debt, everyone else gets to go scot-free. It's got to be a fair, a fair landscape. So- First, let's ask why colleges continue, college cost continues to inflate at double, triple, quadruple the normal inflation rate. How can that be? And we accept it, right? And then second, let's, let's renegotiate the debt levels. And the federal government can do this, bring it down to a much lower interest rate, 2% or 4%, something reasonable, uh, and then allow kids to work it off through some point of public service. That is a much more fair way than giving a blanket forgiveness. That's, that's not fair. And Americans demand that they respond to a fair system. Finally, I want to ask you about a, an issue that really goes to the role of the president as leader of the country. Uh, this has been such a difficult few years for this country in terms of the 
lack of civility, the political polarization, the attacks on our democratic, democratic institutions, be it the judiciary, the news media, the intelligence committee, the list goes on. How, as president, would you go about repairing and restoring Americans' faith in their government and, frankly, their respect, their respect for one another in terms of their differences, not just ideology, race, sexual orientation, et cetera? How would you lead as president in this area? Well, I might start by telling the truth. Uh, you know, I was my mother was widowed twice before she was 40 years old. My dad, I was the youngest of four kids. My dad died when I was just turned eight. And we were raised with all the basic fundamentals of common decency. You tell the truth. You do it to others as they would do unto you. You save and conserve so that you can share in times of need. I mean, all that basic American values most Americans still have. Some, somehow we elected a president who doesn't seem to exhibit the same values uh, the way most of us uh, accept. I, I look at the, what we have to do first and foremost is get us back to a point where we listen to each other. You know, I've never persuaded anyone to change their mind about something that mattered by telling them why they're wrong and why I'm right. In the restaurant business, when someone's really angry with you, you learn to repeat back to them their exact words. So you, so they, in hearing their own words, they feel validated. And when you say someone's words that are being said in anger to you, but you say back the same words, you hear them in a different way. And you suddenly get to a point where you begin to hear each other, and that builds a little platform for trust. And once people begin to trust each other again, then you can have real discussions and once you trust, you can collaborate, right? I got, I got all 34 mayors in the Denver metropolitan area when I was mayor of Denver, and they hated Denver. Denver hated them. You know, when I got elected governor, I was the first Denver mayor in 120 years to get elected governor. They just hated each other, and yet they didn't really. It was the politicians that need enemies to keep power, just like Trump tries to divide us because he needs those enemies to prop himself up. I, I got all 34 mayors to unanimously support fast tracks, 122 miles of new track, of new light rail, uh, basically a, a, a significant sales tax increase for the whole region. Of those 34 mayors, two-thirds, 19 of them, were Republicans. And you think about, holy smokes, that's, that's amazing. I, I mean, that is an amazing statistic to recognize that, that there is still the possibility to get people to work together and collaborate. And it's by listening. I went to each one of those mayor's offices. I listened. Uh, I didn't have to repeat back in their same words. You know, when I tell that story about repeating back people's exact words, my wife had pointed out to me that that's also uh, uh, common in, in marriage counseling. They tell you to repeat back the, each other's words. We have, my wife and I have not been to counseling, just so we're clear. <laughs> Those skills may be valuable in Iowa and New Hampshire. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well. Governor John Hickenlooper, thank you so much for visiting us on It's All Political. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you to Governor John Hickenlooper for joining us, and thank you for listening to this edition of It's All Political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. 
Thanks.